Welcome to episode 396 of the CyberLaw Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. We're lawyers talking technology, security, privacy, government, and this week, war. The views uh, that we're going to express are not those of our institutions, our clients, our friends, family, or pets. Uh, and uh, joining me for what will be a particularly sober news roundup are Jane Baumbauer, professor of law at the University of Arizona, Nate Jones, co-founder of Culper Partners and formerly with Justice on the National Security Council, Dmitry Alperovich, uh, co-founder and chairman of the nonprofit Silverado Policy Accelerator, who's been uh, tweeting nonstop about the uh, war in Ukraine. And I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS and the host of today's program. I, we're going to spend a big chunk of today on the Ukraine-Russia war, looking at it through a tech lens. And I, I guess the there's a lot to say about that. And of course, we don't know how it's going to uh, uh, turn out. A lot of optimism, maybe unjustified optimism about how well things are going for the Ukrainians. But they certainly, there's just no doubt that on social media, the Ukrainians have kicked Russia's butt and really changed their strategic posture, I think. Dimitri? No, no question about this. Russia has completely lost this information war, even if um, they haven't yet lost the, the actual war on the ground. And it's been quite remarkable to watch. I think part of it has been because of the declassifications early on from the U.S. government about the pretext that they were going to assemble for this invasion, which I think pushed them to just abandon any sort of plausible pretext for this war with Putin, you know, implausibly declaring that Ukraine is building nuclear weapons, that it is a Nazi government, which is led, by the way, by a Jewish president, uh, Vladimir Zelensky. And in the absence of that narrative for invasion that they've uh, really not even tried to establish at this point, it's really hard for them to assemble an effective disinformation campaign because every disinformation campaign needs at least a kernel of truth that you're going to exaggerate or mislead and expand upon. And they just haven't had any opportunity to do so. And that's why one of the reasons I think why they're losing the fight. What's really puzzling to me is that on the military side, they've also not pushed back at all against Ukrainian claims of that I think are kind of wildly inaccurate and exaggerated of their military successes. Ukrainians claims that they've shot down three Il-76 massive paratrooper, but yet there's zero pictures or videos of that. Uh, you'd think that the Ukrainians would rush to publicize um, that impact. The Russians have not pushed back on any of that, and it's been really, really remarkable how unprepared they've been for this information fight. Yeah, so the West obviously is is much more disposed to consume what Ukraine is putting out. But you know, some of the stuff. First, Zelensky's appearances from the uh, the stubble to the lack of any uh, coat and tie to a you know a kind of cinema verite selfies on the streets of Kiev when people expected him to be leaving. And saying, you know, I don't need uh, uh, a ride, I need ammo. He's really turned out to be remarkably effective at presenting his case in cyberspace. No question. And remember, he's a media personality. He's been in the show for most of his life for 25 plus years, both as a comedian and as a TV show host. So he is incredibly adept at putting out messages that people can relate to. And Russia has been completely unprepared for it. So it seems to me part of this is the Russians 
didn't, and maybe they couldn't, stop the exfiltration of enormous amounts of data from the inside Ukraine. And that's going to slowly change over time. Do you think that Elon Musk activating Starlink and sending some terminals there is going to uh, uh, allow for a more resilient distribution of data as the Russians start cutting off cables? You know, this has been one of the most puzzling things to me about this invasion. And there have been a number of things that the Russians have done that, that I've just been amazed by of how incompetently they, they've so far waged this campaign. But I fully expected them to target internet exchange points. There's about a dozen of them in Kiev and Kharkiv that would take the country offline. They've done none of that. I expected them to use uh, their incredible capabilities in EW, electronic warfare. They brought a bunch of these brigades down to the border over last year. They have not employed them at all. And I couldn't understand that till this morning, actually, when I saw evidence starting to come out that the Russians themselves are relying on civilian radios and mobile phones for communications between units, which is just so bizarre because obviously they have military communications gear that they don't appear to be using. So perhaps one reason why they haven't tried to shut down communications within the country is because they themselves are relying on it. But clearly that's been a huge mistake for them because they've lost the narrative. The pictures that are coming out of Ukraine are just so horrifying. There's a strike, a missile strike on Kharkiv this morning uh, yeah. that uh, left women and children dismembered in the street. It was just absolutely horrifying. And they've really not attempted to shut any of that down at all. And I think at this point, it's too late. Yeah, th that narrative is settled. And the fact that Zelensky could talk to the European Union Council of Ministers and bring them all to tears, you know, basically signing off saying, well, this may be the last time you see me alive. I really changed things around, say, the uh, cutoff of access to uh, SWIFT. All of that was, you know, an own goal on the part of the Russians. Uh, I, it, it, Dimitri, do you think that this was deliberately meant to be a softer invasion because that Putin thought that it was going to be easier and that a soft invasion would allow him to just swap out the government and retreat? I think there's no question about this. Look, they spent literally the last year, this buildup of forces did not begin in November or December when the U.S. government uh, and the media started paying attention to it. It really began about this time last year. And they brought uh, uh, together the biggest invasion force that Europe has seen in 50 plus years since the invasion of Czechoslovakia by the uh, Warsaw Pact in the Soviet Union. And then they proceeded to not use it. And that's been the remarkable thing. You still have the vast majority of the forces that the Russians have assembled sitting across the border in Russia and Belarus. They've not engaged with them, even the ground forces. They've not engaged their tactical bomb aviation. They've not engaged their EW. And I think the reason is that they uh, assumed that this would be easy, that they can send a few reconnaissance brigades down to Kiev, you know, decapitate the government, and the whole thing would be over. Huge miscalculation on that part. Those units got decimated in Kiev and in Kharkiv and in other areas. The Ukrainians fought back fiercely, and the Russians were stunned and are still, to this day, barely adjusting. I think you're starting to see some changes where instead of these, you know, small 10, 15-unit columns going into major cities, you're starting to see the aggregation of a thousand plus vehicles there's a huge column right now but it's taken them a while to to appreciate that this is not going to be a liberation where people are going to be throwing flowers on their shoulders and this is going to be a tough fight 
And in part, because I think they did this because uh, of two reasons. One, um, they obviously did not want to create an insurgency among the population because if you're trying to swap out the government for a pro-Russian government, you need at least some support in the population to do so. And they thought that a quick decapitation action would be able to accomplish that huge miscalculation. But the other reason I think is psychological, when you look at Ukraine and particularly eastern Ukraine, the landscape looks a lot like Russia just across the border there. The people speak Russian. They look like your, your parents or grandparents. And, and psychologically, it's hard for Russian soldiers to treat these people as enemies, to, to shoot at them when they can relate to them in a way that perhaps they didn't relate to the Chechens or the Syrians in, in those campaigns that they had been fighting. Yeah, there was a great uh, video of the uh, Ukrainian pulling up to a Russian tank out of gas and saying, uh, can I give you a tow back across the border? Uh, and they laughed, right? This is going to end, and it's going to end soon. As soon as people start losing buddies in the war, they're going to view everybody in Ukraine as enemies, and the Ukrainians are going to stop trying to talk to them, uh, I fear. So this this will get uglier, and uh, Grozny is still a real possibility, just a, a complete devastation of a few cities. Well, let me bring Jane Bambauer into the conversation. Jane, part of the losses in social media that the Russians have been experiencing comes from the activities of Silicon Valley companies who clearly sympathize with the Ukrainians and who've been demonetizing Russian outlets and shutting down uh, Russian bots trying to shape the narrative. Do you think that's having a real impact on the debate? Well, I'm not sure in part because this may be a situation where the Kremlin is sort of a victim of its own previous success, where if the Russian population was expecting this to be an easy war and any information starts you know, accumulating that suggests that the previous round of propaganda was wrong, that could itself, you know, it might not take too much information getting through to, to get people in, in Russia worried. But, but in any case, you're right, though, that Russia has, it is, it looks at least so far, like its disinformation campaigns have been pretty pathetic. It's been, the social media companies have, as far as I can tell, been pretty good at classifying falsified footage or footage that, or, or information that, you know, is the product of Russian propaganda. They've done some misclassifying as well. They've, they, Twitter has acknowledged that it wrongly classified some accounts as propaganda that were actually legitimate and providing good information on the ground in, in, in Ukraine. So there's some error probably going both ways. But, you know, g given how how difficult the real-time content moderation task is in a situation like this, and given that they can't rely on certain automation processes, you know, if they allow just like a number of reports of, of suspicious activity to, to be the basis for removing content, then of course that could be exploited. So there's a lot of human uh, capital going into this work. And, and I think it's, uh, it, looks like, it looks like it's benefiting Ukraine and not Russia. So what the Russians have done in response is to say to Facebook and especially YouTube, uh, which they probably care about more, and Twitter, you're not going to be able to operate inside Russia anymore if you don't start treating us more fairly, not just inside Russia, but outside Russia. Right. And that feels like they're overplaying their hand. They're not going to they're not going to 
get what they want from uh, Silicon Valley. And that says to me that uh, this is the end of Silicon Valley in Russia. Nate, do you, you think it's that likely that the, that the Silicon Valley companies are basically going to end up looking in from the outside to the way they do with... A little bit. I mean, you know, I think the big question that remains is whether can, whether Russia can, practically speaking, keep them out of Russia, right, in the same way that China's been able to do more effectively with the Great Wall and everything. And so, you know, I think they well, have been, been pretty good at they've, they've been pretty good at at, at throttling Facebook and uh, yeah. uh, Twitter, and that suggests that they actually can do a decent job. You know, VPNs will make that a little more complicated, but. You know, if you have to use a VPN to post on Facebook, you're going to go to Vicontacta. Yeah, and I, but I think that you know, from a financial perspective, I don't think Silicon Valley is going to shed a lot of tears over this. I don't think they're making a whole lot of money in Russia. I think you know who it really hurts is the Russian people who use Facebook and Twitter and to communicate and to get their stories and their messages out to each other and to the rest of the world. And so I think, you know, in some ways the bulk of the harm here will fall on other people, and that's unfortunate. You know, I do want to really quickly go back. Dimitri was on a roll at the outset, and I didn't want to interrupt him at all, but. You know, he said that, you know, Russia needed a kernel of truth. And I think there there is a lot of truth in that. You know, the other thing, when you look at the, the Russian disinformation campaigns that have been successful, you know, the thing that they've done is target sympathetic audiences, people who are receptive to some of the messages they're they're putting out there. And I think that's where they really struggle here is finding something that's going to resonate with, you know, a lot of people, particularly outside of their own circles. It, it's happening a little bit. You know, you've got Mike Flynn sending letters that are somewhat favorable to Russia and criticizing Biden. But for the most part, it's been hard to find for them to find audiences, I think, that they can direct messages at that are going to resonate. And I think Zelensky on the other side, you know, his success is really important you know the i think the big threat to putin over the long run is not each of these individual battles that's being waged um in the context of this particular conflict but you know the i think the zelensky's approach is really you know putting pressure on on you know america and its allies to to be aggressive and to to maintain their resolve, um, to isolate Putin, to impose consequences, and to push back on this. And I think that 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 approach does matter strategically over the long run for Ukraine and for the West writ large. Well, let me take it back a little to Silicon Valley, uh, Dimitri. Do you have advice for Silicon Valley about how they handle this situation, in which they clearly don't want to just hand over Russian propaganda to their viewers and listeners and readers. At the same time, I'm sure they don't want to abandon the Russian market. Uh, any thoughts about how they're going to be able to navigate this, or are they just going to have to give up on, on Russia? I think they already have. Everyone I spoke to realizes that Russia is about to get completely economically and diplomatically isolated. There won't be any Western companies operating in Russia in a very short period of time. So no one has any illusions about that. And they're all siding with the Ukrainians on this. Google shut down traffic indications on their Google Maps service in Ukraine, in part because they were afraid that the Russians were using it to 
identify Ukrainian forces, traffic jams. So they, they've picked a side and, and excited with it. I don't think anyone is, is at all thinking about um, the Russians and what their reactions might be right now. Yeah, if I could so, add right. to... Go ahead. Oh. Yeah, if I could add to that, I, I I agree that Russia really did overplay its hand because it's attempting to it's attempting to make a you know a completely incompatible legal landscape for these companies where complying with U.S. and EU sanctions laws, for example, is in direct conflict with complying with Russian law that requires certain disinformation or you know propaganda to be made available. And so given the choice, it's very obvious. It's like both values and economic factors are pushing in the same direction here, away from Russia. (laughs) Okay, so let's talk a little bit about what we, uh, a lot of people thought was going to be a big feature of this conflict, which is actual cyber operations and cyber attacks and hacktivism. And there's been claims that a large chunk of the cyber infrastructure in uh, Ukraine has been attacked and there have been wiper attacks, there have been threats, and in some cases a few attacks that might be uh, on uh, Western companies. Conti, the ransomware guys, have come out and said, we're Russian patriots and we're going to start ransomwareing the hell out of the West. Uh, And the U.S. and U.K., there have been leaks suggesting a lot of preparations for a serious cyber campaign, but no sign that one has been launched. Dimitri, you've followed this more closely than anybody because it's it's been your career to worry about these things. Are you surprised at how relatively little impact these cyber operations have had up to now? I'm not. I did not expect much in terms of cyber operations. And in fact, we haven't seen much. The reality is that to win the war in Ukraine, Russia does not need to use cyber. And look, you're going to use the weapons that you need to accomplish your objectives. If you don't need them, you're not going to use them. I think that is true of cyber as well. I thought that they might launch some tactical operations to try to impede mobilization by targeting communication systems or mobilization database to Ukraine, but they clearly did not do that. Again, I think part of it has been an under, underestimation of the capacity for Ukrainians to fight and the willingness, their willingness to fight. Uh, but now it's too late, and I don't expect that the cyber element of this will escalate, at least when it comes to Ukraine. I do think that there is a huge risk of dramatic escalation in cyberspace vis-a-vis the West as Russia retaliates. But when it comes to the battlefield in Ukraine, I just don't think it matters a whole lot. Nate, you've been in uh, uh, meetings about these things in uh, earlier versions of the National Security Council. Uh, do you think there's uh, any prospect that the U.S. is going to use aggressive cyber tactics against Russia, either offensively or as a, a response to what the, uh, the Russians do? I think that aggressive is pretty unlikely. You know, it's pretty clear that we don't want to get drawn into this militarily. And you've seen, you know, going back uh, quite a ways, historically, the U.S. reluctant to launch cyber attacks on Russia 
if there's a fear that it's going to lead to further escalation. And and I think, you know, just given where things are, I think it's unlikely that they're going to have that be the sort of pointy tip of their spear. It's pretty clear they're relying heavily on sanctions and, you know, the enforcement of those sanctions as their primary tool to try to change Russian behavior. And something something that's really never happened in history, as far as I know, uh, unless you count the South Africans who were really just totally demoralized before sanctions started to hurt them. I, I, do, do we really think, even though these sanctions are allegedly the toughest and then are the most aggressive that the U.S. and Europe in particular have ever pursued, I just wonder, we've seen the impact, 25% decline in the value of the ruble. That's, that's a big hit, but it's not the end of the world. I just think that, you know, can the Russian population endure? Of course it can, and it will. In fact, the Russians have lived through a much tougher time than the, the hungers, uh, hungers in the 30s and the Stalinist era and so forth. But the key thing, and, and I published a Twitter thread on this yesterday, is to watch the people in the military and the intelligence apparatus who have for two decades enriched themselves considerably under the Putin regime and have stashed a number of those assets overseas. Sanctions on them and sanctions on those assets and the devaluations of those assets are going to hurt them. And there is a small chance, and I want to emphasize very, very small, but nevertheless non-zero chance, that they will now start thinking about a palace coup type of scenario of getting the old men out because they realize now that those sanctions are not going away. No matter what happens in Ukraine, win or lose, uh, those sanctions will stay there until Putin is out of power. So if they want to create a better life for their families, they may be thinking about another scenario here. So again, very small chance that this might happen. But a few weeks ago, I would have told you that that chance was zero. Uh, Today, it's no longer zero. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of these sanctions are going to take a long time to build, especially the export controls. Yeah. And I think, you know, in some ways, the more important thing that we're seeing here is, you know, even just this morning, Switzerland announced that it's it's taking the step of freezing Russian assets in the country, which is pretty unusual for Switzerland. And, you know, I think this unification of the West that Putin has managed here um, over time and, and stealing their resolve is something that that is going to over the long term, you know, not the short term, but the long term be be a significant challenge for Putin to withstand. And, you know, I think even, you know, Germany, who's, I think, historically, or at least in recent history, been a pretty bad judge of the significance and likelihood of of threats it faces, seems to have woken up in the face of this invasion. And so, you know, doubling its defense budget and taking some pretty aggressive steps with the U.S. that, you know, even weeks or months ago were were unimaginable. And and I think that... Yeah, I agree. I will be kind of disappointed in uh, the intelligence community if it doesn't have a pretty good idea where a lot of the Russian elite's money is stashed and they have never just uh, wanted to interfere with bank accounts uh, using cyber. But if the Swiss are freezing bank accounts, I kind of hope that the intelligence community has gone over to Switzerland with a long list of accounts that they can identify for the Swiss. I suspect they have, yeah. Any thoughts about whether cryptocurrency is going to save the Russian economy from uh, uh, sanctions? Well, you know, the, 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 the Russians have not been actually fans of cryptocurrency. Uh, the central bank was making noise 
as recently as a few months ago about trying to ban it. I don't think it's a solution to their problems because cryptocurrency is not a store of value given the dramatic fluctuations and the value of, of most of these coins. So I don't see it as an effective way for them to evade these sanctions. Yeah, and, and last week, you know, your program sort of talked about the traceability of cryptocurrency too, yes. um, the increasing traceability. Good, huh? So yeah, so so even the upside doesn't seem as as great as it might otherwise, you know. Yeah. Okay. Is there anything we've missed on the cyber angle to the conflict? I think Dimitri and I are both pretty cautious about the outcome and, and a little worried that we're all buying into a, a narrative that's going to produce some serious problems a week or two from now. But any other thoughts on the conflict and how our various cyber issues are going to play out? Well, you know, just, just a couple broader points on the conflict. You know, Putin's objectives with this conflict are several. One was to change the government, to replace Zelensky, potentially kill him and put a pro-Russian government in place that brings Ukraine back into Russia's sphere of influence. And that would then execute a number of priorities, short-term priorities, as well as more longer-term priorities for Putin. Number one being recognition of Crimea as permanently part of the Russian Federation, no accession to NATO or EU, demilitarization of Ukraine, no NATO weapons in Ukraine. I think that as he's looking at this now, he must realize that the replacing the government part of the strategy is just not going to work. Yes, you may be able to uh, decapitate the government in Kiev, potentially kill Zelensky, but the prospect of installing a pro-Russian oligarch or like Medvedchuk, um, who's his friend who just escaped house arrest, and actually holding power without using extreme brutality and huge number of Russian forces occupying Ukraine, that prospect went out the window. And I think he's probably rethinking what he can get out of it. I think that's one reason we're having these talks right now in Belarus between the Ukrainian side and the Russian side, because he's thinking about how can he cut his losses and get at least something out of it. I think he still would not end this conflict without getting concessions on Crimea and NATO, but he may be rethinking this decapitation strategy of the government, given the opposition he's facing, and given the fact that he's turned pretty much the entire Ukrainian population, even those that had some pro-Russian sympathies are now squarely against him. For my part, I personally feel like conflicting emotion. There's part of me that sees the narrative playing out on the internet about Ukraine as inspiring and unifying and like an appropriate vehicle for some amount of pride in kind of Western democracy and Western liberalism. And the downside, so I'll, and to some extent, maybe that's great culturally, or, you know, maybe at least it has some value. But the downside is the one that I think, you know, you and Dimitri are worried about, that that can lead to escalation. Like, will Ukraine, if Ukraine agrees to neutrality status permanently, for example, is that enough? given the now the enthusiasm to to recognize Ukraine as part of the West. And, you know, so I, I'm not sure what I think, but it's very complicated. <laughs> yeah, I, I actually I think that there's a real possibility that we will end up with a neutral Ukraine. And I think it's worth remembering that we had a neutral Finland for 50 years. And it was neutral only in the sense that the elite knew there were things it couldn't say and things it couldn't do. But its sympathies were 
always with the West and its hostility to Russia never ended. And I suspect that's where we'll end up with Ukraine, even if it is formally neutralized. I hope so. That'd be a great place to end up, you know. Yeah, as the pessimist, uh, I think, you know, the thing that worries me is, as Dmitry was saying, I think Putin does, he has to realize that he can't achieve his objectives here. And I think the other thing he probably realizes is that a lot of these responses that have um, been put in place aren't going to go away, even if he makes some modest concessions and backs off. And to me, the risk is that that makes him a little bit more dangerous. Some of the things that have put the brakes on him in the past has been fear of, of retaliation. And if these things are going to stay in place, it can potentially change his calculation on his actions going forward with a little bit less to lose. And it make him, may make him a little more aggressive in other ways, even if he calls off this invasion and agrees to some ceasefire. Yeah, I do think he's not the, the strategic genius people portray him as, but he has our number. Uh, he he or has had our number for a long time but he's convinced he understands the west and its fundamental hypocrisies and weaknesses and strengths and i think he may be a little surprised by how europe reacted to this and maybe with luck he will start to doubt himself or you know he'll just pull out the chechnya playbook and start running it that's the nightmare scenario i think all right, let's talk about something other than that. The U.S. and the EU, this seems a little strange. The U.S. and the EU are struggling over data sovereignty uh, issues, not just uh, personal data, but now a proposal in the European Union to apply the same kind of, you can't export it if the American intelligence will get it, to non-personal data. Nate, this is the Data Act, right? Yeah. Yeah, the NSA is going to be upset that they're cutting off their maintenance business for refrigerators and, and coffee machines. <laughs> uh, right. But, you know, it's. It, it, I think there are some noble goals associated with the Data Act. You know, it's clearly intended to spur innovation and competition in this area to help bolster adjacent products and services to the Internet of Things. And, you know, I think setting up some clear rules is a worthy objective. As you noted, there are, there are aspects of this that see that look a little bit protectionist, which is, in my view, just sort of par for the course when it comes to, to Europe's approach to the tech well, industry generally. Europe's choice is a little bit or a lot. <laughs> <That's all. laughs> yeah, exactly. But there's always at least a little bit. And, and, you know, I think the other thing that's going to be interesting to watch is, you know, some of the, the requirements they're going to place on these companies that manufacture these products and develop these services, such as giving users access, in some cases in real time, to the data that they're collecting on them, um, could be a real challenge. It's going to be something that a lot of these companies haven't ever had to deal with before. And, and it may not be easy to deliver on all the time. So there are burdens associated with this that are going to um, be imposed on European companies as well. But I think, so I think, you know, in my view, it's a little bit of a mixed bag for those reasons. Yeah, it's exactly. You have to really be, really be big to be able to handle the regulation. And the European companies aren't in general, big enough to do that. And consequently, it will favor big companies. And if those are U.S. companies or J Chinese companies, they'll probably end up navigating this 
pretty well. At least that's my take on it, Jane. Right. Yeah. So I, I think there's always with European law of this sort, that's highly burdensome, not only because of the way we expect it to work, but also because of the large number of requirements that are still vague and open to new interpretations. And so there's like a lot of risk associated with compliance. They tend to favor the big companies. I also, I, I agree with Nate that the, you know, the goal of, a, of an act like this is a noble one. They're, they're trying to create this kind of secondary market for data that's incidentally created so that, you know, startup companies or other third-party companies can use it with the authorization of the data, you know, the people creating the data. But, but there are, you know, there, there are a number of examples where the data isn't really incidentally created. It's actually part of, part of the kind of business model or economics of the original data collecting company. And so I worry a little bit that if a company offers some service at a reduced price or even free with the expectation that it's going to get the full value of the data for analytics purposes and other products and whatnot, then this law might zap some of the initial incentives to create that initial, you know, the, the service or product that made the company valuable in the first place. Um, it, you know, so, so I, I don't see a problem in every possible industry, but at least some industries where the whole idea is to generate lots of data that can then be useful for other things, they might just not emerge because of this this law. Yeah, you might not have Google Maps, for example, where they had to send all those cars out to map the streets and take right. the pictures. Yeah. Uh, that was all just wasted money until they could actually turn it into services. And if they, exactly. if they thought they were going to have to and turn Tesla's. that over to, to Waze the next day, they probably wouldn't have done it. And Tesla is in the same position. It's banking a lot on having access to this giant amount of data that it can use to optimize. And there, by the way, the, the data act, the proposed data act here, it does say that the original data collector doesn't have to abide by a demand to give it to a third party company if that third party company is in direct competition. But then that just begs the question of, you know, how that's going to be interpreted. And so um, direct and, and then there are special you know, rules for the, for, for, for the and, gatekeepers. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> OK. Speaking of gatekeepers and special rules, I, Chris Inglis had a long essay called The Cyber Social Contract. Chris is the Senate-confirmed cyber director, a, a position created in response to the Trump administration's kind of complete lack of anybody who, well, not complete lack, but close to complete lack of uh, a high-ranking official worrying about cyber. Now we've got plenty, maybe too many. Chris has written this article for foreign affairs. Nate, can you uh, give us a feel for what his argument is? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the, the fundamental point he makes is, and I'll just read a quote from the article here, that the United States needs a new social contract for the digital age, one that meaningfully alters the relationship between public and private sectors and proposes a new set of obligations for each. I think, you know, he's basically arguing that we need to fundamentally rethink how we orient ourselves from a cyber defense standpoint. You know, he argues in part that we're placing too much of this burden on the private sector, in particular, smaller and less capable companies who don't necessarily specialize in these things. And, you know, it's another thing that I'm pretty sympathetic to at a very high level. And, and you know, some of his 
proposed solutions are sensible, but a number of them are things that the Biden administration is already doing. Things like well, that's the, that's the kind of that's on. table stakes. When you write <laughs> right. an op-ed as, as an official in the Biden administration, you've have... done in the last several months. Yes, um, and that's what you know. A fair amount of this is, and I think you know some of the. I guess where I think it 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 either does or will fall short is in a few areas. One is. You know, the headline at a minimum is a little bit misplaced. It talks about rebuilding trust in a digital world where I think, you know, a lot of the reasons people have lost trust in the digital world are unrelated to cybersecurity and, you know, involve aspects of the digital world that won't be addressed by his proposed solutions. But I think, you know, more fundamentally, there there are a couple of things. One, you know, he talks quite a bit about the need for greater collaboration between industry and the government. And while I agree with that, and while there, I think, has been some progress made in, in recent months and years, industry still remains pretty reluctant to do that in truly meaningful ways and deeply engaged and why with should the government. They? Right. You know? they, they, it, yeah. it, 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 the question is, what's in it for me? And it's not clear that the government has more data. He, he spends a lot of time talking about how we need to consolidate all this data and share it out. And, you know, frankly, I thought that's what Dimitri's company did, <laughs> and very successfully. <laughs> yeah, and and privately, what the government will sometimes tell you is that they're reliant on these companies themselves to get that data in the first place, in many cases. And so, you know, which is why they push for greater cooperation on that front. And so, you know, I, I just find that hard to believe it's going to happen. The, the second thing is, you know, just a more fundamental point, which is that, you know, the, the article is, is focused, understandably, because it's, you know, the core of Chris's job at this point, but it's focused on defense and response primarily. And, you know, I continue to be of the view that this is not exactly a problem you defend and respond your way out of, that a lot of the most meaningful solutions that we need are at their core geopolitical solutions to this problem and are and will remain elusive at this point. And so that doesn't mean we shouldn't do the things that Chris is proposing. We absolutely should. But it's just to say that, you know, ultimately it's, it's not going to be enough. So somebody in the White House reviewed this before, several somebodies in the White House reviewed it before it was uh, published. Uh, I did a, just did a control F search for the word regulation. What do you know? Zero of zero. <laughs> and yet everything he talks about that, that the Biden administration is doing that is good for the uh, new social contract is regulatory or quasi-regulatory. So this is, uh, and you don't get, partnerships, public-private partnerships, unless there's something in it for the private side of that. And usually it's keeping the regulators sweet. Okay, we'll just leave it there. Uh, I, I like this story. Jane, if you're a really wealthy Mexican company engaged in sleazy operations with the Mexican government uh, and you get exposed, uh, apparently you can just kind of hire lawyers and reputation managers and scrub it as it's posted on the internet. I thought this was really a fun story and an introduction to a whole cyber business that we don't see as much of as we probably should. 
Yeah, yeah. So th this story was broken by the website Rest of World, which is which is producing really great journalism out of the you know developing world. And they uncover the story, as you said, showing that it's probably not just limited to, of course, to Mexican um, right. like Mexican construction industry, but it's a good case study. And these, um, so they were engaged in various types of of corruption and you know bad construction using government dollars and these stories kept cropping up about the company the construction company and so the executives hired a company that is called Eliminelia so that's a truly orwellian name for a business i think and what an Eliminelia does is they exploit certain laws like the digital millennium copyright act here in the US or GDPR in, in the EU. And I just want to the... say, I, I just want to stop there for a second. Those are the two laws that I have relentlessly uh, uh, trashed uh, throughout my career. It hasn't done any good, but it is remarkable that, you know, my, my theme has always been that privacy protects the power of the privileged. And this is exactly that. A GDPR, right to be forgotten, claiming that there are violations of privacy. Of course, it's, it's yeah, misused by the powerful. Yes, it is. So, so, you know, there may be arguments that the laws also do some good of the sort that they are designed to do, but well, you won't any hear them claim, here. <laughs> well, well, in any case, any claim that the kind of Posnerian concern that people will abuse privacy rules in order to commit basically social fraud or, you know, even ec economic fraud, a anyone who downplays that risk really needs to read the story because it definitely happens, right? So, uh, yeah. yeah, so it's, it's a good example, I think, of the dangers of notice and takedown because these companies, these intermediaries like Google, which is the company that is targeted for, and they de-index, you know, all these stories, they're not as motivated to, fig you know, get to the bottom who's accurate, the benefits of having content like this stay up are enormous, but they're diffuse. So this is a public good kind of situation on one side. And then the benefits of getting the content taken down are highly concentrated on these individuals who are, you know, scummy. And so a notice and takedown scheme is basically guaranteed to result with too much content being taken down for the wrong reasons. So Vladimir Putin is just missing a bet. If he wanted to get all these damned Ukrainian videos down, he should just claim copyright in all of them. He could get it down. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if All that's right. tried, actually. You bring, a, I, uh, you, you bring up a good point. <laughs> I fear. I, well, I, luckily, I don't think he listens. Uh, um, uh, all right. Last, last story, just to update us on the IRS use of facial recognition. They, they, uh, their use of ID.me has resulted in a lot of unfair but bipartisan criticism of the IRS. What's the latest uh, as far as the IRS using uh, selfies for uh, taxpayer identification? Yeah, they backed off that plan. So the IRS is now saying that, first of all, it's going to delete all of the you know, the selfies and the face scans made from the selfies that they had already collected. And then going forward, if you need to authenticate yourself remotely, you'll have the option of either using ID.me or using a, you know, the, the more resource intensive video chat that, that, that you'll do with an actual agent. And if you do choose to use ID.me, despite the fact that, you know, it means your biometric identifiers are going to be momentarily collected. Well, they're only collected in order to, I guess, you know, 
cross verify that that really is you using some other source, you know, some other photographs that I guess this company must have. And then they will delete those biometric identifiers. Uh, so it's just a one time sort of pop. So yeah, I mean, sir, I share your sympathy for, I, I mean, in fact, <laughs> authentication of this sort is exactly why biometric data privacy laws exist. The idea is we want to make sure that we can use biometric identifiers as a really cool way to do a password. You know, you don't have to remember your password and instead we'll use these, it'll be highly secure without the burdens of password management. And there, you know, there wasn't really any evidence that this company or the IRS was doing authentication wrong. It was not totally accurate. And, you know, so it's very much a sort of in a beta phase of development. But I think there's some potential going forward for biometrics as a form of authentication. So yeah, absolutely. I hope we rethink this. This is a concerted campaign by lefty NGOs in the tech sector. And periodically they pick a technology and say, this must be toxic. We must misfight this. And if we can't stop it, will make it so toxic that regulating it seems like a reasonable thing. And uh, we're down pretty far down that road. There's the four or five states that uh, have laws that regulate this. Lots of cities that have uh, adopted regulation. And so, yeah, but this should be uh, in compliance with those regulations, right? Because the idea is, as me as a taxpayer, I, I consent. I'm here trying to get something done, yes. and I consent to their use. Well, so... <laughs> so you would think, yeah. uh, although the yeah. at least the Illinois laws, a definition of what it takes to get consent has turned out to be pretty hard to uh, comply with, uh, a, and the damages are automatic and easily turned into a class action for hundreds of millions of dollars. So I, I, okay. I think uh, we'll see problems there. And of course, Facebook, uh, as we said last week, has been sued for hundreds of billions of dollars by the state uh, attorney general in Texas. Uh, in Texas uh, yeah. And, you know, it's $25,000 for every time you had somebody tagged is the theory. And he might make that stick. That would be uh, that would be a real blow for face recognition. Okay, yes. uh, Dimitri, thanks so much for coming on. I know you've got a lot uh, uh, on your plate. Nate, uh, it's terrific to see you again. Jane, thank you very much. To the audience, uh, send us questions, comments. Let us know if you want to have a live uh, event for episode 400, which is coming up because we're at 396 so far. I, I, and we'll either have one live on the air if we get enough folks saying they want to do that, or we'll actually do it at Steptoe office in Washington. We've gotten a few comments, but you know, if you want this to happen, you're going to have to send in more mail than we've received so far. I want to thank Weissman Sound Design for our music. This has been episode 396 of the CyberLoud Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. 